Fellow students, if you would turn to Revelation 16, we're going to pick up the parable, if you will, at verse 12. Interesting, uh, how many of you were in service this morning? Was that timely or was that timely? If you haven't been, go to 11 o'clock. It was enormously effective. I had no idea what Pastor Roger was going to talk about, but the opening phrase of today's message here was, people have always wanted to know the future. And uh, unfortunately, people always want to look for the future in all the wrong places. I'm fascinated that God has written everything down that he wanted us to know about the future in his divine revelation, the word of God at that point in time. So we already know how the story ends. It's important that we know how the story ends because it builds our faith on the, in the middle of the book, in the middle of the drama, as we endure life circumstances. If you know how it ends, it gives you confidence, it gives you hope. And we see very clearly the sovereignty of God and the control of God. As a matter of fact, God promises in Revelation uh, uh, chapter 1 a special blessing on those who read this prophecy and those who heed the words of this prophecy. So knowing is not sufficient, it's obeying what you do know. You know, when we know how the story ends, we can look at our current circumstances and maybe put them in perspective, right? Uh, when you look at how God is repossessing his planet from the interloper Satan, you understand uh, the process that he uses this by with the seven seal judgments, the seven trumpet judgments, the seven bowl judgments. And one of the things that you notice about this book is there's a great deal of disaster, correct? A great deal of judgment, a great deal of things falling apart. For those of us who think that the world is normal today, understand the world today is very abnormal, right? The king is not on the throne, the bride is not with her husband, and the chief interloper is running the government. You know, as my friend Dave just told me walking in, why would we think that things are well? The good news is the king is returning, the bride is gonna be with her husband, and the interloper is gonna be in the lake of fire. That's when things will be normal. Life has not been abnormal on planet Earth since the fall of Adam and Eve. So this chapter is the culmination of how God is preparing planet Earth for the return of the king. Last week we reviewed the first five bold judgments in chapter 16. Remember we had malignant sores, skin ulcers, we had dead oceans, toxic fresh waters, scorching heat, and a worldwide blackout. And you say, well, can it get worse? Oh, yeah. It can get a lot worse. It's going to get a lot worse. As a matter of fact, we're going to find that out now. And let me give you the key idea of the message. Here's the key idea of the message. God is preparing the earth for his righteous rule by destroying the evil that defies his rule. Understand that righteousness and sin cannot coexist eternally. It won't happen. God is a holy God and he is going to judge sin and destroy evil. Now the process of destruction is very, very disturbing. As you read this, you say, my goodness, this is pretty severe. Yes, that's because sin is so lethal. It's killing the things that God values called you and me. Let's take a look at verse 12. I'm going to ask Rob to put a map up of the Euphrates River Basin. Verse 12 says, And the sixth angel poured out his bowl upon the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up, that the way might be prepared for the kings of the east. Now remember, we talked about these bowls are very shallow saucers, and when you turn them over, everything that's in them comes out all at once. So when these judgments fall, they fall like trip hammers very, very quickly. The Euphrates River that you see on the screen, and its cousin, it's kind of its twin, the Tigris River, 
The Euphrates River is the largest river in, uh, in Western Asia. It has a major place in history and biblical prophecy. It's 1,728 miles long. It runs from modern-day eastern Turkey, which is the nation, the nation state, the geography of the Armenia, Armenian people, and it runs all the way south to Noah's Ark. I mean, south to the Persian Gulf. Its headwaters are in Mount Ararat. Mount Ararat, as you recall, in Genesis was where Noah's Ark landed and where some still believe it's encased in uh, glaciers at that point. Mount Ararat's 17,000 feet tall. It is permanently capped with an ice cap, so it's never ever melted off, so we have never seen the totality of the top because it's so cold and so high. The Euphrates River and its twin, the Tigris River, both have their headwaters in the Mount Ararat Armenian region. And between these two rivers is that part of the world we used to call the Fertile Crescent. Remember when you were a kid in school, the Fertile Crescent was thought to be the genesis of human civilization, and that's where the Garden of Eden is as well. There's four rivers in Genesis that mention the Euphrates River. The passage in Genesis mentions the Euphrates River being near the Garden of Eden. This river is very, very important from a historical standpoint. It has always been the boundary line of deparkation between the east and the west in a contemporary thought. East of the river was considered eastern part of the world and the western part obviously the west. The Euphrates River was the eastern boundary of all the land that was promised to Abraham in Genesis 12. So when Israel is restored in the millennium, the boundary of Israel will go to the Euphrates River because God who cannot lie promised that in Genesis 12. This Euphrates River was also the eastern edge of the Roman Empire for centuries. The Parthians lived on the other side of the empire and they were a nomadic people, horseback ridden, who gave the Romans a great deal of trouble. So this river has been a boundary for, for centuries. The Euphrates runs about 30 feet deep and in places is 3,600 feet wide. So fairly significant river. And God says, I'm going to dry this river up. Now, the purpose of the sixth bowl judgment is to dry the river up in order to make it easier from the kings of the east. If you look on the east of that, typically that's been Mesopotamia. God's going to make it, God's going to facilitate the invasion of Israel by kings from the east by drying up the rivers that create hindrances and boundaries to them. And you say, well, how big a deal is a 30 foot deep river? If you go back to the fourth bowl judgment, what was the fourth bowl judgment? It was scorching heat, remember last week? And we said that the heat is gonna be so high that we're gonna see massive melting of glaciers, massive melting of perhaps even the polar ice sheets in Antarctica and Greenland. Well, if in fact it gets that warm, the polar ice sheet on the mountain area, that's gonna melt. What's gonna to happen to this river when you have the entire headwaters melted all at once? It's gonna to go to flood stage. You're gonna have a pretty massive, you might have the bulk of this river basin here be flood stage and that's gonna hinder military movement from the east. God's gonna dry up the river because he wants the kings from the east to be invading Israel. Now how he dries the river up, it doesn't say. This whole area is very tectonically unstable. Long history of earthquakes. I don't know whether God's gonna create a rather major earthquake, open up underground caverns to get that done. I don't know whether God's simply gonna melt the ice cap on Mount Ararat and let the water flow to the Persian Gulf. And then obviously with snow, no snowpack, there's no water. But however means God uses to dry up the river, whether it's supernatural or natural, God's plan is to bring Israel's enemies into her territory. 
Now, if you're an Israelite, you got a real problem with this. God made promises to you that are eternal promises, and now it seems as though God is facilitating an invasion of your country. And that's absolutely right. It's a divine trap. It's the same way that the parting of the Red Sea was a trap for Pharaoh and his armies, the flood of the opening of the Euphrates River to facilitate the invasion of the kings of the east is also a trap for them. It says literally that the way might be prepared for the kings of the rising sun. That's the literal translation. Now many commentators that I've read believe that that involves nations from the Far East, Japan, China, India, etc., etc. I've read other commentators that believe it refers only to kingdoms immediately to the east of the Euphrates River. I'm inclined to believe it's worldwide because as we get further in here, you're going to find out that the invasion of Israel is worldwide. So these kings are going to be moving from the east to the west to Israel. And you say, why would they be doing that? What motivates them to make this long trek, obviously from the far east into Israel at that point in time? Let me give you the context. Some of them may be invading Israel to settle old political scores. Remember, the wheels are coming off the Antichrist's empire at this point in time. Put yourself in the shoes of the Antichrist, the beast. He claims to rule the world. He claims to be God. And what's gone on with the planet? Well, there's been floods and the oceans are dead and the, all the fresh waters are toxic and all the, 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 the polar ice sheets are melting. There's massive flooding. There's massive earthquakes. And he's supposed to be in charge. Would you vote for this guy as president? Of course not. So the wheels are coming off the Antichrist's empire, and he knows that at that point in time. So he hasn't been able to prevent God's judgments. He's been in charge when they've been going on. So some of these folks are invading Israel looking for power. Some of them are just simply, they hate the Jews. Why would we be surprised that these kings hate the Jews? Who's their leader? Satan. Does Satan hate the Jews? He's hated the Jews since Genesis 12 when God made promises to Abraham, no question. We do know that the ultimate motivation for these kings to invade Israel comes in verse 13. They're persuaded by ambassadors of Satan, verse 13. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophets, three unclean spirits like frogs. So John now has another vision. And he sees a horror movie. What he sees is a midnight seance in the capital of the Antichrist. He sees an unholy trinity. He sees an unholy trinity. Satan is the dragon. The beast is the Antichrist. And the false prophet is the one who forces the world to worship the Antichrist. And they're plotting strategy. They need to plot strategy because the situation is pretty desperate. Lucifer is not stupid. He knows he has a date with Almighty God in the nation of Israel, and that great battle is coming up, and he knows he needs all the help he can get. So his strategy is to send demons throughout the world, literally as divine ambassadors, not divine ambassadors, satanic ambassadors, and he's going to try and influence these kings, these political leaders around the world, to move their military machines into Israel to join him in the final battle against number one, the Jews, and number two, God himself. Now, when you listen to this, you've got to scratch your head. Satan believes that he can bring human and military machinery plus his demons, and they're going to do battle with God himself. What's wrong with this equation? 
You've got the creator and you've got the created. And the created is going to do battle with Almighty God. Really? This is deception. The most deceived person in the universe is Satan, truly. John sees these demons and they appear to him as frogs. Now, in case for those of you that don't know, frogs are unclean animals in Jewish thought. And they were generally loathed by most civilizations. Most civilizations looked as frogs as vermin. Remember, the second plague on Egypt was what? Frogs. An abundance of frogs. Even people who like frog legs, that was too much. They had quite a lot of frogs in, in Exodus 8. So in John's vision, these frogs are coming out of the mouth of these three, the false prophet. It's a fairly grotesque image. You can see Indiana Jones and see snakes coming out of mouths of statues, etc. But he sees them coming out of the mouth because the mouth is the instrument of persuasion. The mouth is the instrument of influence. And Satan is going to use these demons to influence human kings to invade Israel. That's his strategy. So these demons are going to carry this call to arms from this trinity to the kings of the world, verse 14. For they are spirits of demons, performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the, great, for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. Now we know that demons are unclean spirits. We know that demons are fallen angels. We know that one third of all the angels followed Satan in rebellion. That's who we're talking about here. 1 Timothy 4 tells us that demons are seducing spirits and they spread the doctrine of devils. Interesting. Demons have no bodies, correct? They're spirits. And you say, well, how are they going to influence the world if they have no bodies? Demons seek embodiment. Who are they looking for? They're looking for people to possess. That's what demons do. They hate disembodiment. They seek bodies. They're going to find people. The whole world at this point in time, with the exception of a few Christians, is following after the beast. They'll have plenty of bodies to inhabit and travel to foreign countries and try and influence them to go to battle against Israel on bequest of Satan. And it says they're going to persuade. How are they going to persuade? What does your Bible say? They will perform what? Signs. Believe me, this is not tic-tac-toe signs. This is miraculous stuff. This is going to be either deceptive sleight of hand or it's going to be genuinely supernatural signs that Satan has been allowed to do. So there's going to be signs and wonders and miracles and they're going to use these to deceive the world's leaders into joining them in their battle against God who they blame for their suffering. Go back to uh, chapter, oh, go back to verse 11. The world at this point in time is in an aggressive state of a rebellion against God. And if you look at verse 11, it says they, that means those on earth, not the followers of the Lamb, but those who have taken the mark of the beast, they did what? Blaspheme. That means they cursed the God of heaven. Why did they curse the God of heaven? Because of their pain and their suffering and their sores. And they did not what? They did not repent of their deeds. Now, these demons are not going to have very much trouble in persuading people to do battle against God because the people that are on earth are non-repentant and they blame God for their suffering. They're going to be glad to go to war against him. Apparently, the deception is so successful that the entire world will believe it. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. Jesus told us in Mark 13, 22. Jesus told us the false 
prophets and the false Christ will be so effective, he says, false prophets and false Christ will arise and will show signs and wonders in order, if possible, to lead the very elect astray. What it tells you is in coming days, the deception on planet Earth, the demonic deception is going to be so effective that everyone who does not possess the Holy Spirit by means of Jesus Christ as Savior is going to be deceived. Here's the principle. Everyone who rejects Jesus Christ and God's word is believing Satan's lies. Everyone. No one on planet Earth, apart from those who are under the authority and infilled with the divine Holy Spirit, has the discernment to detect deception. We know the entire world is what? Deceived. Do you know people that are deceived? Of course, you listen to them talk and you say, it's clear they deceived. It's clear they've bought Satan's deception. The only way you cannot buy Satan's deception, if you have the Holy Spirit in your life who illuminates the word of God and shows you truth from error. Now, the world is filled with very smart people. But without the Holy Spirit to give them discernment into the word of God, they are fools. Romans 1, we know that. The entire world is, is following after a lie. Here's the principle we talked about several weeks. Never base your faith on any sign. Period. There is no sign. There is no wonder. There is no miracle that your faith are based on. We know that false prophets do signs all the time. You base your faith only on what? What you have in your lap, the divine word of God, it alone does not change. Everything else is changing in this world. So when we look at the future, your faith is never based on your circumstances. Ever. How many of you have circumstances you'd like to change? Yes. Sometimes you just like to leave, right? I don't want to be here. I don't like these circumstances. Your faith is never based on your circumstances. Neither is your joy. Otherwise, you're going to be in a state of perpetual bipolar. My circumstances are good. I'm euphoric. My circumstances are rotten. I'm depressed. That's not how we are to live as believers. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And this place is not your home. Your home is in heaven and it's coming. So when you see this thing falling apart by design, it says, look up for your redemption, what? Getting closer, getting closer. So Satan's goal is to create a worldwide military coalition that's strong enough to defeat God. Satan knows this is impossible, but Satan hates people. He hates you, especially. Satan is willing and able and planning to bring as many millions of people into Israel as possible to do war against God so God will kill them. And they'll be in hell with him. That, I mean, it's diabolical. You look at this and you say, this is just evil. Of course it's evil. He is evil. Completely evil. What is paradoxical for us is God has planned all this from eternity past. Joel 3. For those of you that want to cross-reference, Joel 3, verses 9 to 12. God is speaking about this specific period of time. And God says, proclaim this among the nations. Prepare a war. Rouse the mighty men. Let all the soldiers draw near. Let them come up. Verse 10. Beat your plowshares into swords. 
prepare for war, right? And your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak man say, I am a mighty man. Verse 11. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there to Israel. Bring down, O Lord, your mighty ones. Let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. That's in Israel. God says, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Here's the principle. And this is a paradox. A paradox is two MDs that are married to each other. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I heard that. I didn't, I'm not smart enough to create that. Here's the principle. God hates evil. But God uses everything, including evil, to accomplish his sovereign purposes. There is nothing that will thwart the purposes of God. Nothing. Not evil, not good, not almost good, not people, not Satan, not principalities, not powers, not things present or things to come, nor future. Nothing thwarts the sovereignty of God. Romans 8, 28, 31. God hates evil, but God uses everything. Some of you, some of us, I'll put myself in this group, we look at the world situation and we say, this is an unmitigated disaster. God is going to use every broken, sinful item for his sovereign glory and his sovereign purpose. You and I don't see that. We, don't, we dwell inside time. God lives outside time. See, it looks like these demons are accomplishing Satan's purposes in bringing all these nations to Israel. Because all these nations are going to come, right? The reality is God is sovereignly using Satan's evil plans in order to accomplish his good purposes. Satan is gathering the nations to rebel against God. Joel just told us that God is bringing, God is using Satan to gather all those nations so he can judge and rule over them. Interesting that Satan has one set of objectives, God has another set of objectives, and God is using Satan to accomplish his purposes. And you say, well, doesn't that make God a bad God? No, God never authors evil. God hates evil. But God in his mercy and his sovereignty uses everything on this broken planet for his long-term glory and your long-term good. And this year, I promise you, some of us are going to be in circumstances we're going to have to take that by faith. You're going to have to decide, do I believe my circumstances? Do I believe Almighty God? If you're living on the earth during this period of time, there is no hope in your circumstances because the planet literally is coming apart at the seams. It'll be faith in God or faith in nothing. So here's the earthly paradox for you and I. Obedience to God produces more freedom than rebellion against God. Let me say that again. For you and I as Christians, obedience to God produces more freedom than rebellion against God. I did it thy way produces more freedom than I did it my way. You understand that? Some of you are struggling with that. <clears throat> I went to two memorial services this week. One was a formal Catholic mass, and one of, the, one of the advantages of a Catholic mass is everybody knows what you're supposed to do when. It's all written down. All the antiphonal reading, it was very formal, and there was all the priests and the incense over the altar, and I mean, everyone there knew exactly what to say and when to say it because it's all scripted. And at this Catholic mass, <clears throat> in a very... Um, traditional church, 
About two-thirds of the way through, the decedent, a neighbor of ours, was a Sinatra fan. Loved Frank Sinatra. And they actually had a soloist that sang, I did it my way, at this memorial service. I couldn't believe it. I thought, you know, I don't think this is going to play well before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. Because I did it my way is really a song of rebellion. It's a song of revolt. It's a song of flagging God a bird. It's the theme song of hell. When you rebel against God, you become a slave of sin. Do you understand? There's no freedom in that. There's bondage in that. God knows that. We're going to serve. It's a question of whether we serve Jesus Christ or whether we serve ourselves, which is a euphemism for serving Satan. See, when you obey God, he opens more and more and more and more doors. You experience more and more and more freedom. When you get to heaven, you have maximum freedom, correct? When you serve Satan, he lies. Serving Satan is like going down a funnel. He promises you, if you disobey, you can do anything you want, baby. You can do anything you want. And you sin and your world gets a little narrower. You have addictions. You sin and your world gets a little narrower. Your body starts falling apart. You sin and your world gets a little narrower. You go through divorce. You sin and it gets a little narrower, right? And you know when you get to the very end, you're in a little itty bitty funnel and it dumps you into hell. You've been lied to. When you serve Jesus Christ, it's just the opposite. Jesus promises you, follow me, and you go, Lord, that's a very narrow path. I mean, that's a narrow path you want me. Man, Satan's promising me this wide road, right? When you serve Jesus, narrow path. And the more you obey, the wider your world gets. The more freedom you experience, the more joy you experience, the more contentment, the more peace, and you wind up with heaven. Huh? Which funnel do you want to go down? Start with the narrow end and watch it grow, right? That's why obedience produces more freedom. Because God is a good God and he wants what's best for us. It says these nations are going to be led into Israel for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. Now, by the way, this is the battle of Armageddon. We're really going to get into this in detail in Revelation 19, but there's no single battle of Armageddon. It's a series of campaigns. It's a war. The Greek word here is palermos, palermos. It means a major war. It means a world war. It means a series of campaigns with multiple battles. So here's the big picture. <clears throat> Mankind has been warring against God's rule ever since Genesis 3. Psalm 2, if you want a really interesting cross-check against that, you look at Psalm 2 and it records man's war against God. Psalm 2 says, this is God talking, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a great, a vain thing? Verse 2 tells you what we do. The kings of the earth, you could say the politicians, the presidents of the earth, right? They take their stand and they take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, Jesus Christ. And these leaders say, <clears throat> let us tear their fetters apart and cast their cords from us. So the goal of all these people that are gathered together at the battle of Armageddon is to defeat God in battle and throw off his rule. Humans have been trying to do that since Adam and Eve. And God has been very patient with man's rebellion for thousands and thousands of years. He's tempered his judgment with much mercy. 
This is the day when God will destroy all those who oppose him. Verse four of Psalm two. He, God who sits in the heavens, laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. That's what the tribulation is. God's been speaking to humanity in his anger over their sin. And these judgments are God saying, I'm done, I'm done. God says, my goal is very clear. Verse six, I have installed my King Jesus Christ upon Zion, my holy mountain. Verse nine, this is all Psalm two. Jesus shall break them with a rod of iron. <clears throat> he will shatter them like earthenware. So you've got this final conflict. You've got man fighting against God. And Jesus says, God the Father says, I'm my king, I'm going to install. He's going to rule over this planet. And those who resist him will be broken like you take a clay pot and throw it down in your patio. How many of you have ever done that? You should try it. It's a mess to clean up. But it's kind of fun to watch it go, right? We were taking down a, <clears throat> our Christmas lights the other day and I got, I didn't realize, I had, we had the Christmas lights wrapped around the, uh, what do you call it, the balustrade? Is that what you call it? The, the thing you put your arm on when you walk up the stairs? Handrail? Banister, banister for us elderly people, right? <clears throat> and anyway, one of the light bulbs hit the banister and it goes poof, right? Makes a nice little pop and then you spend 15 minutes cleaning up the glass. So interesting, that's the picture here. God says, you have no ability to resist my rule and I'm going to exercise my sovereign right to rule. Now, Let's go to verse 15 of Revelation 16. This is a little encouragement from God. In the middle of this disaster, this battle, a series of wars that's coming up, the Lord has a message for those who have not taken the mark of the beast. So this is a little parenthesis. It's a little aside from Jesus. Verse 15. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who, underline this, stays awake and keeps his garment, lest he walk about naked and men see his shame. See, this is both a comfort, right? I'm coming back, and it's a warning at the same time. Stay awake. So that's good for you and I today. This is the third time that we see one of these little asides come. Between the sixth and seventh seal judgment, we have a little bit of encouragement. Between the six and seven trumpet judgment, we have a little bit of encouragement. And now between the six and seven bowl judgment, we have another little bit of encouragement. It's almost like God says, man, you've seen so much catastrophe, you need a little perspective. You need a little encouragement. You need a little remembrance about who's in charge of this. And he says, behold. In the Bible, behold means pay attention. Wow, pay attention. Stop. He says, I'm coming. That's a, in the Greek, that's a present... Uh, participle, I think it means my coming is so certain we're going to treat it as if it's already in the process of occurring. So this, this coming refers to his second coming. His second coming. The rapture's already occurred. The church is gone. We've been gone before the tribulation started. He's talking to Christians who have become Christians in the tribulation. These are tribulation saints, not the church. The church left before the tribulation, but millions of people have come to faith during the tribulation. This is God's message to them because they're looking at the world falling apart around them. They're going, whoa, what's going on here? We have faith in Jesus, but everything's going to, you know, wearing a handbasket. The Lord sends them a little encouragement. He says, behold, I'm coming back, but I'm coming like a thief. 
Now, a thief generally doesn't email you in advance and say, I'll be there at 1210 tonight, right? At least not smart thieves, right? Thieves come unexpectedly. They come quietly, they come quickly, they come with stealth, they come without warning. And 1 Thessalonians 5, we're told the day of the Lord will come like what? A thief in the daylight, right? Is that what it says? Why don't thieves come during daylight? I mean, they come at the night so they can hide out. They can come during stealth. So these believers, they may know the general idea of Christ's return, but they don't know exactly. So here's the principle. And this is for us today. Because the rapture has not occurred, but nothing has to happen before the rapture occurs. Jesus could come anytime. He could come before noon today. I wish he would. You cannot predict when Jesus will return. So be prepared by staying in daily fellowship with him. You cannot predict when Jesus will return, so be prepared by staying in daily fellowship with him. It says, blessed, this is a beatitude, there's seven of them in Revelation, blessed is the one who does what? Stays awake. You know, wouldn't it be nice if there was just spiritual caffeine you could take? Would keep you awake? By the way, there is. <clears throat> Awake means to stay in daily fellowship. Don't fall asleep in your relationship with Christ. Don't neglect your relationship with Jesus. Be continuously alert day by day by day by day. Here's the picture. The picture is of a soldier on guard duty. Now, if you're a soldier on guard duty, would your comrades expect you to stay awake? Yes, because their lives depended on you staying awake. When you're on guard duty and you're awake, it's really a good idea to stay dressed for battle because going into a sword fight with no clothes on could be really brutal, right? We would at least know when you were stuck because the blood would kind of show the marks. So if you're in battle, you stay awake and you keep your uniform on, right? We're told to put on the whole armor of God in Ephesians 6. So the way we prepare for Jesus' coming is by living every day as if today will be the day. You know, it's very easy in this world to get sidetracked and to think, you know, I'll deal with the second coming or my death when I get old enough to think about it, when I get old enough to worry about it, or when my health starts to fall apart. The reality is that's very, very unwise. That's very unwise because the assumption is I'll have time to get it figured out on the way up. You won't have time on the way up, right? And you probably won't have any warning on the way up either because here's what's interesting. The thief never surprises the homeowner that's awake. Homeowner's expecting him, right? What does it say? Jesus said, blessed is the servant who stays awake and is busy serving when I come back. So we should be alert every day as if today would be the day Jesus comes back. One of the interesting things I was told when I first came to Christ, don't do anything that you would be ashamed to have Jesus come back and see you doing. Well, he can see you all the time. It's just that we treat him like children. My head is under the blankets, Lord. When I'm looking at this X-rated movie, I can't see you, so I don't think you can see me. Not. When I first came to Christ as a young man, my singles pastor told me one of the best ways to monitor my thought life was to always pretend that I had a helmet of holiness on. You know what a helmet of holiness is? 
It's a video screen in your forehead. Every thought you think shows up on the video screen. I thought, I've got to completely change the way I think. Right? Because it's all visible. We forget that if you, if you had a video screen on your forehead and every thought you think flashed up there, you might change the way you think because it would be pretty obvious that you can't hide from anybody. Well, that's reality. The Lord Jesus sees everything at that point. So it's good recommendation to stay awake, to stay awake. Now, if you are in fellowship with Jesus, there's going to be some visible results. It says you get to keep your garments. You know, garments in, in the spiritual life, that's fruit of the Spirit. Those are practical good works. Those are the evidence that, in fact, there's been a change in your heart. You're doing good works, the fruit of the Spirit. If you neglect your relationship with Jesus Christ, you are spiritually naked. That's a pretty graphic testimony, but it's there for a purpose. It says, lest you walk about naked and men see your shame. Even in today's culture, most people would rather be seen clothed, right? For which we're very grateful, right? I know there's exceptions to every rule. I know that. But Jesus is talking about being found spiritually naked before him in judgment because you've neglected your relationship with him and there's no evidence, there's no work, there's no fruit of the spirit, there's no fruit on the tree that demonstrates, yeah, this person belongs to me. It's clear they're a Christian. You can look at their life and tell. So when you stay awake, you be, stay productive at that point in time. He's saying when people live for themselves, they produce the deeds of the flesh and not the spirit. And in the day of judgment, they're spiritually naked and they're going to be ashamed. Verse 16, Rob's going to show you a map of the Jezreel Valley. <clears throat> this is the location. We're going to get into this in greater detail in chapter 19. This is, the, this is the location of the battle of Armageddon, or at least the staging ground. Verse 16, and they gathered them together to the place, which in Hebrew is called Hamageddon. Ha means mountain or hill, and Magadon means Megiddo, the hill, mountain, or hill of Megiddo. Megiddo is, is, translates into Greek for Armageddon, and Megiddo in Hebrew means a place of troops. So it's been a battleground. It's an ancient fortress. You can look up there and you can see Megiddo on the map. It's about 60 miles north of Jerusalem. Take you a little while to walk there today. You can drive it relatively quickly. But Megiddo is about, this is a, this is a map in, in ancient Israel, not at the time of Christ. Nazareth's about 10 miles on the other side of the valley. So the north side of the valley up there by Endor, a little bit between Endor and Shimeon, that's Nazareth's about 10 miles north. So Jesus grew up overlooking this valley knowing it was going to be a site of future conflict, right? It's about 15 miles inland from the Mediterranean coast. So where you see Mount Carmel, right there by the, on the, on the, the little jet out that goes, that's the modern city of Haifa, big, big port city at that point. You go inland about 15 miles, and that's where you wind up in Megiddo. And if you go to the left of Megiddo, you see the plain to the west. If you look to the right, you see the Valley of Jezreel. The valley's about 14 miles long or wide and about 20 miles long. It's not a big place, but it's literally a flat agricultural area. For those of you that have been there, it is spectacular. And it's been the site of many, many, many battles. Deborah and Barak in Judges 4, they battle the Canaanites right here. Gideon conquered the Midianites right here in, in Judges 7. Saul and Jonathan were killed in the east side of this valley on Mount Gilboa near Bethshan. Actually, Mount Gilboa is a little bit north of that, but that's where Saul and Jonathan were killed. Uh, King Josiah was killed in this valley by Pharaoh Necho. 
in, uh, in, of Egypt at that point. So lots and lots and lots of battles. Now you need to understand the battle of Armageddon does not take place in this valley. This valley is the staging ground. Remember in World War II? World War II, what was England? England was the staging ground. It was the gathering place for the troops to get ready to invade Europe. The actual initial battles took place where? On the beaches of France, right? That was it. So the battles were not in England. It was the staging ground. Armageddon's the staging ground. The battleground is actually 200 miles long. It covers the entire land of Israel in chapter 14, verse 20. It says it's a 200-mile-long battlefield, but the target is not Armageddon. The target is Jerusalem. The battle is for Jerusalem. Our, you know, Antichrist's goal is to defeat God, eliminate all the Jews, capture Jerusalem, and set up his, his, his throne there at that point. So we're given this little taste of what's going on, and verse 17 says, oh, by the way, before the sixth plague is complete, before the battle of Armageddon is complete, here comes the seventh plague. Verse 17. And the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, it is done. So far, we've had plagues on the land, the sea, the waterways, the sun, the throne of the beast, and on the river Euphrates. This is the first plague on the air, into the air. The last plague here is poured into the atmosphere. Now, Ephesians 2.2 tells us that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. So we know that that's his domain. So this judgment attacks not just human rebellion, but satanic rebellion as well. And there's a loud voice that comes out of the temple of God. That's God's voice. It comes from the throne itself. And it says, it is done. Who else said it is done? To Tetelestai means paid in full. That is the work of redemption accomplished on the cross with nothing left to add. God is saying here, there is no more judgments to come. These judgments have an appropriate end with this one, and the effects of this judgment will go on in the future, just as the effects of the cross will go on in the future. So it's a permanent sort of judgment. The earth is now prepared for the coming of Jesus Christ the King. And verse 18 tells us what's going on to heaven and what's going on the earth. It says, There were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there was a great earthquake. And you go, well, there's a lot of earthquakes in the book of Revelation. There are a lot of earthquakes. But you need to underline this one. This earthquake is such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. Now that would tell you that this is an unusual earthquake. It's a singularity. It's one of a kind. It was so great and so mighty. Now, we have heard voices in heaven. We have heard thunders and lightnings before. They're warning a future judgment. We heard that before the seal judgments. We heard that before the trumpet judgments. And whoa, we're now hearing it before the seventh bowl judgment. So heaven is telling us this is a significant judgment. And this final earthquake is so large, it's off the Richter scale. It's not measurable. Let me give you a little comparison. It is even larger than the worldwide earthquake that ushered in Noah's flood. The earthquake that ushered in Noah's flood was so great, it literally unzipped the crust of the earth to release the subsurface waters of the deep that jetted into the atmosphere and flooded the whole world. As a result of Noah's flood, we now have tectonic plates that the continents float on. 
And earthquakes occur when these tectonic plates rub against each other. You can go around the Pacific Rim of Fire, you know. All the way around the Pacific Ocean, you will see a ring of fire where there's volcanism and there's earthquakes because you have the Pacific plate and the North American plate touching and there's plates under Japan. By the way, you should be very frightened. Tokyo is built on the intersection of three tectonic plates. Three. Great place to build the largest city in the world. They do a lot of work on ensuring that their skyscrapers have a lot of range of motion so they don't fall down. So they expect earthquakes at that point. This earthquake is larger than the one that occurred during Noah's period of time. What I didn't realize is that earthquakes are very abnormal. And you say, what do you mean they're abnormal? They occur all the time. The world is very abnormal. God did not create the planet with earthquakes. Psalm 104. Psalm 104, verse 5. God established the earth on its foundations so that it would not totter forever and ever. Verse 6. He covered it with the deep as with the garment. The waters were standing above the mountains. You go back to the Antediluvian pre-flood world and what was it like? You didn't have Mount Everest in Adam and Eve's period of time. It was a very low hill no high mountains, no deep ocean basins, no destructive deserts. It was a very verdant world. In Genesis 6, the world became filled with violence, and God said, I'm going to not just judge humanity, I'm going to change the nature of the whole landscape. And the flood brought about seismic activity that pushed up the mountains and sank the ocean basins. That's why you got 29,000-foot Mount Everest and six-mile-deep ocean trenches. That was not part of the original creation. God says, I'm going to reshape the planet. I'm going to completely reshape the surface of the planet. Haggai 2, verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more in a little while I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations. God says, I shook it once during the flood. How many people survived? Eight. I'm going to shake it again once more, and I'm going to make it even more graphic and terrifying then. This one, if you could get scared from circumstances, this verse should make you nervous. Isaiah 24, 19. God says, I'm going to shake the earth so hard that the earth is broken asunder. The earth is split through. The earth is shaken violently. The earth reels to and fro like a drunkard. It totters like a shack. You think God's going to shake this place? This earthquake is going to completely restructure the surface. He's going to shake the earth until it breaks open. Isaiah 24, verse 19 and 20. Have you ever seen a wet dog shake themselves? Have you ever wondered why their fur just doesn't come off? I mean, when they shake, I mean, they literally throw water out. If God shook the earth this hard, how far would the oceans expand into space? I don't know, but the, the image of a wet dog was the one that came to me. It's pretty violent shaking at that point in time. And it says, it reels like a drunkard. The earth is going to totter like a drunkard. Sometimes on True TV, you can see actual police video cams where they do these traffic stops. And lo and behold, the person that's weaving all over the road in the car is weaving all over the road when they stand up, right? They try and give them a sobriety test and they fall over and tip over and stuff like that. They wobble until they fall down. That's the picture. 
God says, I'm going to shake this planet so hard that everyone's going to fall down. There's going to be no place to hide, and I'm going to completely reshape the surface of the earth. Zechariah tells us, Rob's going to show us a map of Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. Keep your eye on this because verse 19 tells us, During this earthquake, the great city, which is Jerusalem, was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. So you have Jerusalem being split into three parts. Now we know how it's going to get split. Zechariah 14 tells us. Zechariah 14.4 says, Then Jesus comes back, his feet are going to land on the Mount of Olives, which is just to the east of Jerusalem. The Kidron Valley runs between the Mount of Olives and the Temple Mount and the, the city of Jerusalem. So there's a valley between them called the Kidron Valley. Jesus is going to land on the Mount of Olives, and he said there's going to be an earthquake, and the Mount of Olives is going to split north to south. So part of Mount of Olives will go south, part of Mount of Olives will go north, and he says there's going to be a big valley in between. Now, we know the city split into three parts. I don't know this for sure, but I would lay even money with you, biblically, that the Kidron Valley is going to be another point of separation, and the west part of the city of Jerusalem will be the third part. So the great city is going to get split. Mount of Olives north, Mount of Olives south, with a great valley in between. There's a huge aquifer there that God says he's going to bring up, and he's going to restore the Dead Sea with it. We'll do that later on. The western part, is my supposition, will be the third part of the Mount of Olives at that point in time. Now, chapter 11 of Revelation tells us that there was an earthquake in Jerusalem. It toppled the walls. 7,000 people were killed, and the rest of the Jews came to faith. So I'm going I'm to propose to you that Revelation 11.13 is the point at which the Jews are converted. Revelation 11.13. If the Jews are converted, then God will not destroy Jerusalem. Because that's his capital city. Jesus Christ is going to reign from Jerusalem. And you say, well, what about the rest of the cities? Underline, it says, the cities of the nations fell. It's only six words, but the implication is staggering. It says, every city on planet Earth, with the exception of Jerusalem, is going to fall down flat like Jericho. That's how big this earthquake is going to be. Now, what this means is everything that mankind has built, all human infrastructure is destroyed. Buildings, roads, bridges, dams. Sorry, Daryl. Everything you build, buddy, it's going to get thrashed. Tunnels, power plants, Electrician, electrician, electrical transmission lines. <laughs> Too much coffee. Water pipes, sewer pipes, skyscrapers. All the human built infrastructure is going to be flat. The loss of life is incalculable. God says, I am literally going to destroy this planet and everything in it that rebels against me, and I'm going to remake it for the millennium. Which is interesting because verse 20 even tells us more detail. It says, this earthquake is so vast that every island fled away and the mountains were not found. It means that islands are mountains in the what? Ocean. And they are going to 
sink. Goodbye, Hawaii. I'm serious. It says you won't be able to find any island. They're going to sink. The tectonic plates are going to shake to the point in time where they literally shake away. The great mountain ranges are going to be shaken so flat it says you won't be able to find them. And you say, that's going to be a pretty big earthquake because the whole Himalayan chain averages, you know, 21, 22, 22,000 feet, and it's going to be so low that you won't be able to identify it as the Himalayan chain. Yeah, God's going to redo the planet. You're going to have tsunamis beyond your comprehension. You're going to have fissures opening up on earthquake fault lines. God is basically saying, I'm bringing the planet back to what it was in Eden. I'm reshaping my planet and I'm completely ridding it of sin and everything that resembled that. You're going to have gentle rolling landscapes, shallow seas, no more earthquakes. You may even see God reinstall a vapor canopy that circled this earth prior to the flood. We know that if it rained 40 days and 40 nights, there had to be a pretty heavy-duty water canopy over the planet. You don't get 40 days and 40 nights of rain out of this kind of atmosphere. Interesting that that's one of the suppositions why people live for thousands of years because that very heavy water canopy shielded the ultraviolet rays that ages us and kills us. It's interesting that Scripture says in the millennium, people that die a hundred will be born like a baby's death. It will be, you will average, you'll live hundreds and hundreds of years during the millennium. So you know that the planet's got to be reshaped because we don't live a hundred years under the current geologic formation at that point. God is judging sin by destroying sin, but he's also preparing the earth for Jesus' coming reign. Verse 21 tells us, unfortunately, that the ones who survived the earthquake <clears throat> don't escape either. Verse 21. And huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men, and men blasphemed to God because of the plague of hail, because this plague was extremely severe. Now, I had done a whole neat little thing, and I said, well, a 100-pound hailstone. And I thought, well, okay, a gallon of milk, water weighs 8 pounds a gallon, correct? So a gallon of milk weighs 8 pounds. And I'm thinking, a 100-pound hailstone, that's a lot of gallons of milk falling down all at once in one ball. And then I did a little work on the Greek, and the Greek word for stone here is lithinos, which means rock. Doesn't mean water. It means rock material. Think about this. You have the strongest earthquake in human history. What inevitably follows extremely strong earthquakes? Extremely strong volcanoes, right? So you're going to have more volcanism on the planet probably as well. It's the picture of volcanoes that are spewing 100-pound boulders hugely high in the atmosphere, and they come raining down on people. 100-pound boulders falling from 100, 200,000, 300,000 feet in the air. It's very likely that a pretty good chunk of these boulders are going to find their way over the land of Israel. Where are there millions and millions and millions of soldiers right now in the land of Israel preparing to do battle with Jerusalem, preparing to take over God's land? There's millions and millions of soldiers that Satan has persuaded to come to the land of Israel to, to re rebel against God's rule, destroy the Jews. God brings the biggest earthquake in history, sends 100-pound boulders on top of these packed soldiers like sardines. 
We talked a couple weeks ago about God saying that this area is the winepress of his wrath. I read a commentator, Henry Morris, who said, could it be that these falling boulders are crushing these wicked people like grapes? It says the blood will run up to the horse's bridles, which is about four and a half foot tall. So we know there's going to be mass destruction. Unfortunately, this verse ends the same way verse 11 ended. How does it end? The men blasphemed God because of the plague of hail. They did not repent. This, this group that's still on the planet Earth has taken the mark of the beast. They've sworn allegiance to the Antichrist. They've rebelled against God. They've heard the gospel preached from angels, 144,000 Jewish evangelists, angels and angel flying in mid-heaven, the two prophets. They've heard it for seven years. And they've experienced all the judgments, and they still have said, no. Still will not repent. Now you understand why God has to bring this judgment. Because they will not submit to his rule, so he's going to impose his rule. Understand, folks, no matter what you want to believe or how comfortable it is, God is sovereign. He is the king. This is his world, and he is going to rule it. Period. He says, I want to adopt you in my family. I want you to acknowledge me as king voluntarily because I've paid your sins, paid for your sins with the blood of the cross. Those who refuse this will pay paying for their own sins. And they don't have to. That's the part that's heartbreaking. The blood has already been shed. The price has been paid. They just need to receive. Accept Jesus Christ. If you don't, you wind up paying for your own sins. This is the outcome. You don't have to be here. None of these people have to be here. They all have the opportunity to repent. They just chose not to. This is Heartbreak Hotel. But it's also the holiness of God saying, there is going to come a day when I'm done. I'm done. We're going to deal with sin. All right. In review, and then I'll ask Tom to come up. Is it hot in here? Am I spewing that much hot air? Last week it was cold. And now it's warm. You know, we're not happy one way or the other. Okay, here's the key idea. <clears throat> God is preparing the earth for his righteous rule by destroying the evil that defies his rule. Number two, everyone who rejects Jesus Christ and God's word is right now believing Satan's lie. They are deceived as we speak. Here's the paradox. God hates evil, but God uses everything including evil and including you and me to accomplish his sovereign purposes. So what's our job? What's our privilege? You cannot predict when Jesus will return, but you can prepare by staying in daily fellowship with him. Okay? I love you guys. That's why I speak and God speaks what he does because he loves us. So now that you know, go and do.